While you take your seats, once you take out your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 9. Tonight we come to what's commonly known as the covenant of Noah, or Noah's covenant, or the Noahic covenant. And again, I draw your attention while we're in the book of Genesis, that amongst all of the rules that we use in biblical interpretation or hermeneutics, The law of first mention is once again in view in this passage tonight. There are several words that are used and they define uh, how we understand uh, these various root words that are used throughout Scripture and tonight that word covenant. It's going to be used seven times. Uh, As most of you know, when God uses something seven times, there's usually at least uh, a tertiary glance towards that being completion. And so God uses this Hebrew word here, um, bereth, or, or the Greek word, it, it's complement, diethke, to say that there's going to be this legal arrangement that's going to be put together by God. And in its context, the important part here, um, as with all covenants hereafter, is to discern who it is that's making the covenant, with whom God makes the covenant, what the content of the covenant is, and are there any conditions? And in this case, we're going to find out because of the personal pronouns with who makes the covenant, that the covenant maker is God, the covenant receptor is Noah, his family, all human beings that will follow, and the earth itself, including all of the animals. And so God is going to make, in that sense an unconditional covenant with Noah. And so as we pick up uh, in chapter 9, and we'll uh, begin in verse 8, we'll look at this incredible covenant, uh, the first of its kind in all of Scripture. And so would you pray with me? Father, again, we come to you, the author of Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would instruct us, Lord, you love mankind. And you have from the very beginning poured out your grace. You did so in the garden with Adam and Eve's sin. You did so with Noah and his family that you saved anyone. And now you're going to actually make a covenant with Noah, his family, and all who would follow after him that you would never again by flood destroy the earth. And you will give a sign so that we can know that uh, you mean business and you'll keep it. And so, God, we ask that you'd speak to us through your word. Instruct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8, Genesis chapter 9, and then God spoke to Noah and his sons with them, saying, so we can see there are two parties, uh, and a covenant by its Hebrew definition is an agreement between two parties. Uh, It can be one party speaking the covenant to another party, or it can be two parties in agreement, It can be a party that is in disagreement with another party and conditions imposed. In this case, it's very clear what God is doing. He's speaking in kindness. He's speaking after the storm. And he's speaking in this time when Noah might have been tempted to to think that if he doesn't do good, uh, then God might just wipe him out someday. And now that there are storm clouds that brew, because there weren't before, now that there are the, the remnants of the flood, undoubtedly millions upon millions upon millions of dead things all over the earth, some of them visible, some of them buried underneath sediment, you can kind of see God uh, instilling a sense of his grace. You can see God instilling a sense of his care, his concern, and his desire to drive out fear in the life of Noah. Because if you had just survived, now think of this for a moment. This is the environment that Noah and his sons and and their wives are are living in at this moment. There are very few human beings on the face of the earth. Those human beings have just witnessed the wrath of God poured out on the entire planet so much that only they survived. And, And you might be saying to yourself, if you're them, maybe God's going to be angry with us someday. Maybe this was all about what we do. And so God is going to make it very clear that his grace is in view in this passage. I think it's one of the clearest first glimpses that we get 
truly of the grace of God, though we've seen it surely in the garden. Uh, but this one is really clear. And God spoke to Noah and to his sons with them, saying, and notice the personal pronouns here, there's 16 of them, the eyes, the me's, the my's. Behold, as for me, I establish my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you. And I want you to take a look and remember the animals that are listed here. There's only four kinds. Birds, cattle, every beast of the earth that is with you, all that go out of the ark, and every beast of the earth that is there. And thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so God's making it very clear to Noah that he has no intention, and Noah does not need to fear every time there's a storm on the horizon that this is going to be the end. Because he would have certainly had a reason to believe that given what he has just seen. And the same is true in your life. There are times when you have a reason to look at what's going on in the world and fear. You have a reason to think, man, I just don't know if God even really cares for me. And this is the picture of grace in our lives. God gives us sufficient understanding of his character, his nature, the things with which he has blessed us, so that we do not fear him in that way. I personally do not fear the judgment of God. I don't fear the judgment of God eternally, and I don't fear the judgment of God falling upon this earth and destroying me and my family, because I know what he's promised. He's promised that he is going to get us all the way home. He, he, he may allow a storm or two in our lives, but we're not going to be destroyed by those storms, because he's promised to never do that again. And so he begins to speak forth these words, which I believe are words of comfort to Noah. And so we establish it not to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And so not just Noah, not just the animals, but the very earth itself. He's saying, look, the, the earth paid a price as well. And while the earth doesn't have a consciousness, the earth doesn't have a soul, uh, the earth itself was destroyed. And God put a lot of time and effort and energy, as much as he did in creating mankind, into creating the earth. And so he's saying, look, I, I will not do this again. Once is sufficient. I, I've made my point. And it shall be that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that that rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh, that the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and of all flesh that's on the earth. For this is the sign, God says, of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So it almost seems repetitive, but anytime God repeats something, he's doing so for a reason. So as you look at this passage, and as you look at this covenant that is now being made, again, the law first mentioned, God mentioned seven times this word covenant, uh, and he has in view something that he's done previously, and he's now saying, I will never do that again. And when God says he won't do something again, you have his word on it. And so as he speaks this forth, he's really speaking forth grace into their lives. I want you to notice also that there are zero conditions, none, not one, placed on Noah, his family, the animals, or the earth. He doesn't say, I will be gracious to you if. He doesn't say, I will be gracious to you providing you do thus and so. He simply says, this is on me and I'm going to keep it. Much like our salvation. Our salvation began with God. It came from God. It was purposed by God. It was put forth by God. It was in Christ Jesus made a reality. And if God didn't start it, if God didn't finish it at the cross, we're in trouble. And so this is really a picture of foreshadowing 
of God's grace that will come upon us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And God graciously gives Noah and his descendants this beautiful sign, a, a rainbow or a bow in the clouds. And it's universal. Notice he makes very clear that these things are, are not just simply for Noah. And, and here's the thing with us and what God says and what God promises. And this is where I want to put this into, into play for us as, as the body of Christ in the world that we live in. God's promises are very much dependent on God completing them, but they're dependent on you believing them and laying hold of them. You have to lay hold of the promises of God, take stock in what he says, and live as though they are true. There are a lot of people who walk around knowing the promises of God, but they don't walk in that promised life. They walk in fear. They walk in shame. Sometimes they walk in rebellion. God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. God has promised to make us new creations in Christ Jesus. God has promised to bless us. God has made countless promises to his beloved children, us, but we have to lay hold of them. We have to act on them. I talk to people all the time that can actually quote to me chapter and verse what God's word says but they refuse to believe that it applies to them. It's like, well, I know it's good for everybody else. It's just not good for me. Look, the promise is good on God's side, but you have to lay hold of it. Just as though Noah has to no longer walk in fear. Noah and his family, every time a storm cloud came on the horizon, could have panicked. They could have wandered the earth for the rest of their days going, every time a cloud comes, they're like, oh no, here it comes again. We're all going to die. Start packing the suitcase, honey. Get out the rafts. They could have walked in fear. The only thing that prevented that fear was trusting God. Hear me well. The only thing that prevented that fear was them trusting exactly what God said. Because the storm clouds were going to build. There were going to be thunderheads over their living situation. They were going to experience rainfall. Can you imagine every time it starts to rain, Noah and his family cowering someplace in fear, wondering whether they were going to be next. When God says it, we believe it, that settles it. Amen? You have to lay hold of the promises of God and believe them for you. I cannot believe God's promises for you. No one else can believe God's promises for you. You have to believe God's promises for you. There's a story back in the mid-1800s, and for those of you that don't know, the, the Mississippi River in the northern stretches used to freeze over fairly regularly. It's happened to 10 times or so from the mid-1800s to about the 1930s. During one of those times during the great westward expansion, uh, there was an awful lot of traffic that would travel out to basically modern-day St. Louis, and from there uh, they'd hit the wagon trains for the great west as we know it. They would begin to head out on the Oregon Trail. When they got to the Mississippi, there was a fair amount of people who just simply settled there because the Mississippi itself, when it's flowing, was a rather large obstacle. But during the winter... When it would freeze over, some people looked at it in an even more terrifying way. And so there's a story of a man who comes to the Mississippi River and it's now frozen. And because he cannot see what's underneath, he can't see the moving water, he doesn't know what's under there, his perception is the best thing that he can do is crawl out on that ice and see if it will hold his weight while he spreads his arms and his legs out and tries to make as big a footprint as he possibly can. And by the time he's about halfway across, which in the northern reaches is still more than a half mile wide, he's sliding on his belly across the frozen Mississippi River, creaking and cracking and listening, and all of a sudden he hears sleigh bells. And he looks around over his shoulder while he's laying on the, right, on the ice. And here comes a team of two horses, a sleigh full of coal, and a man whistling a happy song. 
and he is flying across the same ice. You see, that man knew something. That ice, once it got a few inches thick, was more than capable of holding more than a ton of weight per square inch. And if you spread it out on the skids of the sleigh that he was driving, there was absolutely no problem of just going right across the Mississippi River. But he had to trust the promise that he'd been told by the man who owned the coal business, which was, if the ice is more than a few inches thick, you're safe. And the picture is this. We can know, but we absolutely have to do the trusting ourselves. You can crawl across God's promises, or you can get in a sleigh and start zipping along your merry way. You have to trust God. Sometimes we act cautiously and timidly and we we tremble in every single venture. And and frankly, family, it's crippling. When When you have a problem trusting what God has said, it's very tough to go very far very fast. You usually end up crawling. You don't go quickly at all. God's promised that he'll always be with us. The question is, do you believe that? He's promised to always uphold you by his mighty right hand. But do you believe that? He's promised to give you victory over your enemies in the spirit realm. But do you believe that? Are you going to crawl on your belly or are you going to zip along in the sleigh? That's the question for us as we look at this great promise to Noah. God's promised to take us home. But do you even believe that there is a home? Do you believe that's where you're going? You see, it's true. But you have to believe it. And you have to act on it as though you believe it. You see, you live differently when you live by the promises of God. And while I'm saying this, I I want to in no way, shape, or form say that I'm not prone to, to myself at times. Like, oh, Lord, I just don't know. Every once in a while, I I get in those places where it's like, God, is that really for me? We have to trust God. The biggest promise we have is that we have full and free forgiveness of every last sin that we have ever committed in Christ Jesus. You believe that? Because if you do, it frees you. Noah is being set free from fear. He is being turned loose to look up at the sky and go, praise the Lord, it's going to rain today. Because rain was not a good thing before, but rain is now a good thing. What was a bad thing? This is a Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. What seemed like evil, what seemed like was going to wipe him out, was actually going to turn into a blessing. The question is, do you believe it? Did he believe it? We have to stand confident on God and his word. And it's only then that we can do what he's asked us to do. Otherwise, otherwise we just wander around just asking God to continue to give us more signs when he's already given us a sign. When you look at this promise, you have to ask yourself something. Because there's really only two types of basic promises, and one is conditional and the other one is unconditional. Conditional promise would be what we call an if promise. In other words, I will bless you if you do good works. That would be conditional. An unconditional promise is I'm going to bless you, period. And in this case, there are zero conditions given by God. It's a result of Noah's faith alone, in God alone. It's the same type of promise that we have through Jesus Christ. We believe we are saved by grace and through faith. That grace is God's grace. That faith is in Christ alone. And that faith results in us having eternal life and our sins forgiven, our accounts cleared up before the Lord. And so in order that Noah might understand that, God says, I don't want you to concern yourself anymore. 
So when you see a rainbow, remind yourself that I said I won't ever destroy you again by flood. Now what's interestingly missing here is it doesn't say that God isn't going to bring maybe a local heavy rainstorm. doesn't say that God maybe won't send some winds that are going to damage crops. It doesn't say that God isn't going to allow things into Noah's life that Noah is not going to like or maybe even hate. It just says not only will God be with them in the storm, God will be there after the storm, and God has promised to take care of them in the middle of that storm and never again allow them to be destroyed. So this is an unconditional promise. The thing that that draws to our attention is that storms are now, because of what God has said as far as Noah is concerned, temporary. And family of God, storms in our lives today are also temporary. They may last way too long from our perspective, but they are not one second too long from God's perspective. Storms last as long as he wants them to last. Sometimes we add to the length of storms because we're disobedient. Sometimes those storms are because we are with other people who have uh, accomplished some things that God is trying to show them a different way, and so he allows a storm. Maybe you're a family member, and someone in your family has brought a storm into your life. But God is in the midst of those storms, and they will not last forever. Now, that's where we have to turn, in essence, in that deep faith to the Lord. You see, God's going to make, and he will continue to make, through the book of Genesis, and as we get into the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to see God make continual promises. He's going to make promises to Noah. Uh, he, he does so here. He's going to make them to Moses, to David, literally to the nation of Israel. He is a promise-making God, but here's the even better thing. He's a promise-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. And as far as Scripture defines the word covenant, this is the first one. There are some scholars that say, well, there was a covenant in Eden. Uh, There was a covenant with Adam. And and while it was true, God made some direct promises to, to Adam in the Garden of Eden, Uh, The Hebrew word that's used here is used here for the first time. I want to turn your attention to a passage of Scripture. In fact, I'm going to ask you to turn there to Hebrews chapter 8. And I want to look at the New Testament's take on what the covenant really is all about. Verse 1, Hebrews 8, it says, Now this is the main point of these things that we're saying, and I'm reading from the New Living For we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle of the Lord erected and not of man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and therefore it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests to offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. So you can kind of see the setting here. Moses was given some instruction by God. But the promise keeper was not on the earth. The promise keeper was in heaven. For he said... See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain, but now has he obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Notice the word better. All these promises of God, every last covenant that God makes, God will keep. But there's one covenant that really concerns us in that most pointed way, and that is the new covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now, this is where all the rest of the covenants that are found in the Old Testament come into view for us. God is going to make covenants with Noah and covenant with Moses and a covenant with the children of Israel. And he's going to keep his part 100%. But the bottom line is people have not kept their part of the bargain. 
They've not served and loved the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They continue to go awry. Verse 8 here in Hebrews chapter 8 says, Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, I disregarded them, says the Lord. So here's a conditional covenant. God said, if you will be my God, or be my people, I will be your God. So God says, look, this is conditioned on you taking some action on your own. And they did not do it. For this is the covenant that I will make with Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful unto their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. For in this he says, verse 13, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. So the reason that I bring this to your attention is that God had a purpose for all of the Old Testament covenants, including the one with Noah. But every last one of them was a foreshadowing of what would happen when Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, establishing the new covenant of grace by faith, erasing our sin debt to those who believe in him. And so he's really saying, look, God is faithful. He's always been faithful. I was always keeping my part. I have never not kept my part. And so every promise that you find in the Bible, you can count on God keeping his part. But God has now placed us in a New Testament time with a new covenant, and he is now saying, look, this covenant that I've made is overshadowed by the covenant of grace. So for us who sit around thinking about the covenant with Noah or the covenant with Noah, with Moses, or the covenant with Abraham, or the covenant that was made with Israel, Abraham's seed in essence, the one that we need to remember is that Jesus Christ has overshadowed all those covenants by the covenant that he made with us with grace. So you can walk around in that grace. You're, You're not under the scrutiny and the thumb of God under the old covenants. The Jewish people will receive Uh, Certainly the benefit and the blessing of being God's people, and that's the whole function and focus that we had when we were in the book of Romans, there in Romans 11. Uh, But God is now establishing that these storms will be temporary. These covenants are now going to all be overshadowed uh, by the new covenant. And so he gives them a visible sign. Uh, God never wanted man to, to fear him in that way. We are to fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. We're to fear the Lord in the sense that we reverence God. We're to have God in the right place so that we can be in the right place. Part of the problem with man is we have the wrong kind of fear of God. We, we fear God only from the fact that he can destroy us instead of we fear God because he knows what's best for us. A, a lot of people, actually, if they have any understanding of God, wander around thinking, well, I hope he doesn't squish me like a bug. That's the wrong kind of fear. God wants you to fear him because he knows what's best. And so we reverence him. That word fear can actually be uh, translated reverence. In other words, put him in his proper place. He's God and you're not. And neither am I. And so in order that they would remember that, so that they wouldn't ever be tempted to think, he uses the Hebrew word oth here, uh, which is translated sign. It's also the same word that is used for the mark of the beast or a token uh, of God's care it is a visible sign that you can clearly understand. He says, look, I'm going to put a rainbow in the heavens. And, and that would be easy for Noah to have forgotten the first time there was a major rainstorm. It would be easy for us to get, forget in our day and time because we live under the threat of all kinds of crazy stuff. I was reading a news article. We have members of the Joint chiefs of staff that are now saying, well, we're in the most precarious time that we've ever had since the 1960s when we were under the threat of nuclear annihilation by then uh, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. 
There are some that are saying, well, we don't know what's happened in, uh, with the North Korean fissile material. Maybe it's been smuggled into Iran, and maybe they already have nuclear weapons. And all these things, by the way, may be true. But if you are a child of the living God, if you've believed in Christ Jesus as Lord, you do not need to fear these things. Because if the very worst thing happens, and somehow there is a nuke that's launched here, and it goes off in the South Bay, you're going home to be with Jesus. That's a win. Now, you may be dust while you're here on this earth, but you're eventually going to turn into dust anyway. So it's just kind of speeding up the process. You see, a lot of people wander around in this incredible fear. Well, you know, what about global warming or climate change or the polar ice caps melting? God has said he will not ever allow the earth to be destroyed again by flood. So if you're worried about the ice caps melting and flooding the earth and wiping out a bunch of people, you don't need to because God's already said he's not going to destroy the earth by flood again. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of our planet. Matter of fact, it means exactly the opposite. We should take care of our planet. He's made us stewards of the things of God. It's his planet. We're supposed to take care of it. But we don't need to sit around and worry about it because it wastes our time. Valuable energy is spent worrying about things that we cannot control, that only God knows what's going to happen. I was talking to a guy probably a month ago, and he sent me this, like, 20-page email of all the existential threats that we have all over the globe. And I started reading it, and I started to panic. I'm like, man, we're going to die. It's like, just like, boom, boom, boom. You know, it's like there's, there's this virus and that virus, and, you know, there was like 20 different nuclear things that were on there, and reactors that were ready to blow up, and earthquake faults that were ready to split. Look, if God doesn't have it, we're all dead God's got it. He's always had it. Amen? Again, I'm not against the science that we're using to try and discover ways to fight these things. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying if you are governed by worry and fret and care and concern as a child of God, you're governed by the wrong thing. We are to be like the children of Israel. Their name literally means governed by God what Israel means. We're to have God first. In the end, God's going to take care of everything that needs to be taken care of. And so he employs the sign of a rainbow. He's basically saying, every time you look up there, remember my promise. Every time you look in your Bibles, remember the promises of God. Just take him at his word. You know, as they, as they wandered around, eventually they'd be able to see the results of the flood. It would have been devastating. Mankind would go through all kinds of things. Now there would be volcanoes, and there's going to be long, cold winters, and an ice age or two, physical disturbances on the earth. There's going to be all kinds of things that went on. But it's just that God was saying, look, the next time it rains, just cheer up, I've got it. That doesn't mean to be flippant. It simply means to let God take his rightful place. He's promised. We enjoy those promises. In, in effect, uh, that, that picture of, of the rainbow that's here. And I love, when you think about a bow, you think about a bow itself in the context that they would have understood this. Uh, a bow was also going to be an archery term. It would be that from which an arrow was slung. Normally, if you're on the dangerous side of a bow, it's on the curved side, right? That's the side the arrow comes from. Guess which way that one's pointing as far as a rainbow's concerned? Towards God. God took the danger and he said, look, I'm going to give you the side that's safe. I'll look at the curved side. I'll look at the possibility of those types of things happening again, and I'll deal with them. I said, why don't you just enjoy the life underneath this rainbow I've created? I'm going to tell you, never again is this going to happen, is what he's saying. And he didn't say if, he just said it's not going to happen again. And he makes that covenant with all of creation. 
Basically, he's restoring uh, to some degree the world that he had uh, purposed for, for mankind to, to walk in in the garden. And it's interesting that when you look at the animals listed here, and if you join all of them together, when you, when you look at the, the rainbow itself kind of as a sign, there's only, there's only three places in the entire Bible where the word rainbow is used. And all three times, and we'll look at them in a, in a couple of minutes, but all three times I think God is speaking the, the central message that that rainbow is a picture of him. And in fact, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 uses a term uh, that's translated in your English Bible, the manifold grace of God, the word manifold. And what the word manifold actually means is multifaceted or multicolored. It, it means everything that God is in all of his grace, every flavor and color and shade of it, is how God wants us to see him. He wants to see the totality of his grace in our lives. But so often we only see a little tiny bit, maybe one or two colors of the, of the rainbow that God wants to pour into our lives by his grace. But he, he shows us these animals here in this passage in chapter 9. He says, wild beasts, cattle, humans, and, and birds, basically. And when you get to the book of Revelation, you may remember that there's four living creatures there. Oddly enough, they're the same four living creatures. And behind them is a rainbow. And that rainbow is around the throne of God. And so God, I think, is just reminding us, look, I meant what I said. It's the way it is in heaven. That's the way I want it on earth. And so you remember what Jesus prayed. He said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. He's saying, let heaven come to earth. And Noah is getting a little picture of that. He says, I want you to live a heavenly life while you're on earth. It doesn't mean you're going to be free from everything that could possibly touch you, but it means that God's got it. He actually is in control. God was constantly sealing things with signs. He'll do so with Abraham with the sign of circumcision. He's going to make a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, and he's going to give them the Sabbath. And here he gives Noah uh, this, this picture that no storm was ever going to overtake him, the rainbow. Gives him the colors of, of, of God's existence in heaven on this earth. And I don't know how many of you, you enjoy rainbows. One of the beautiful things about the Hawaiian Islands is because the Malka showers sweep through and the trade winds blow them through, you get rainbows all the time because the sun has to be behind you in order for you to actually see a rainbow, because it's caused by uh, reflection, refraction, and dispersion of the light. But when you see light in its white, which is these lights that are behind me, are actually LEDs, and they're capable of producing uh, pretty much every shade or color that we can possibly see. But you only see seven basic colors prismatically, and so red, yellow, green, blue, violet, orange, uh, and indigo, so those colors that you see in a rainbow are just the primary colors, but ultimately they can make hundreds of colors uh, that your eyes can actually perceive. So when you go on your little, you know, you're in Microsoft Word or Outlook or someplace, and you see your little color icon, and you want to change the color of something, you'll notice that there's uh, pretty much what looks like a prism. And the reason that this is important is God was explaining to Noah, he says, look, I, I have every shade and every color of everything that can possibly happen to you covered. If it's a blue thing, I got it. If it's a red thing, I got it. If it's a green thing, I've got it. If it's yellow, I've got it. If it's some shade of magenta or fuchsia or whatever, I've got it. I've got it under control because there is no color on my earth that isn't inside of my rainbow. And I've said, I'm going to show it to you so that you don't have to worry about it. That manifold grace, that multicolored or variegated is another way to translate that word manifold. And when you think about what God's really trying to say, he's saying, look, you, you live your life and let me do the worrying why jesus said don't worry amen you remember what he said not to worry about 
So don't worry about clothes. Don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about the birds. Don't worry about the flowers. I've got them under control. I have it all under control. The reason he said that is because he's got it all under control. But you've got to walk in that promise. I have to walk in that promise to live that life that's free of that kind of worry. Now let me differentiate here the difference between worry and a healthy concern. If you go out on the freeway, you should have a healthy concern that there are cars next to you where people are putting on their makeup while they're driving. (laughs) That's called having gray matter in your cranium that's actually functioning. You should be very concerned about that. But what you should not be worried about is that you're going to die. Because it's been appointed unto man one time to die and then judgment. God knows when that time is that you're going to get killed. You should just simply in wisdom scoot over a lane. Right? (laughs) Difference between concern and worry. We're not to worry. Worry is that thing that just absorbs all of our time and effort and energy. And you wander around, you fret about things that you can do nothing about. You have no capacity whatsoever to either affect the outcome or even change it in a perceptible way. And yet, don't we worry a lot? We want, wow, what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? God's got the what ifs of your life. Let him handle those what ifs. You make the lane adjustments when necessary, but let God have the what ifs. Because he truly does have it. There were three rainbows, and I want you to see this, that we principally see uh, in Scripture. And, and the first one here is with Noah. And it's interesting to me that he sees his rainbow after the storm. Something is horrible as this cataclysmic flood happens, this mabul mayem in Hebrew. This, this devastating global flood wipes out the face of the earth. And it's after that that Noah actually sees the rainbow. The prophet Ezekiel, on the other hand, sees the rainbow in the midst of his storm. And I think this is a picture for us. Because God was there after the storm for Noah. Doesn't mean that he wasn't there before the storm. But he gives us a picture of being there afterwards. In the prophet Ezekiel's case... He's there in the midst of the storm. He has this incredible vision of wheels and the throne of God and these living creatures, one like a man and a lion and an ox and an eagle. And it's the same picture in Revelation chapter 4. And so in the midst of this, this storm, this swirling mass of things that he didn't understand, here, here's this sign that God's got it all in control. So after the storm, when you think maybe God's forgotten about you, he's got it. In the midst of the storm, when things are swirling and you have no point of reference in your life because things are just chaotic and hectic, Ezekiel has a picture of God still got it then. And then the final rainbow, it's actually before the storm. It's before judgment. So I think God in all three cases is reminding us, look, I was the one who was, and I'm the one who is, and I'm the one who is to come. I was there before. I'll be there during. I'm going to be there after. I am the I am who is in all three tenses. The the Greek root word there, or the phrase to be, he says, I am past, and I am present, and I am future. The picture's the same in each case. He's saying, look, I want you to see me, whether you've come through a storm Remember who I am. When you're in the storm, remember who I am. If there's a storm coming, remember who I am. And for us, we have to live our lives that way. Because the same God is in each situation. He was there during the storm, but Noah didn't see him when he was inside of the ark. He saw him after he got through the storm completely. Ezekiel didn't see him when the this torment begins and, and this whirlwind happens and he's, he's caught up in this chariot. He doesn't see him initially, but he sees him in the midst of all these things going on. And then the Apostle John sees him uh, before God's judgment is poured out on this earth. 
And so there's a personal lesson here. It's personal for you. It's personal for me. If you trust God, you will see God in every bit of your life. You're going to see him after the storm. You're going to see him in the storm. And you're going to see him before the storms even happen. But you've got to be trusting God. Noah was trusting God. However imperfectly Noah trusted God, Noah trusted God. God's covenants are are yes and amen. Amen? When he says, I mean it, he means it. When he's promised to never leave you or forsake you, he, he means that. When he's promised to complete in you that good work that he started unto the day of Christ Jesus, he means that. You see, you may have a storm in the midst of him doing that, but you've got to trust him that he means that. You need to be looking for the rainbow part of this. The little glimmers of God, the little glimpses of light, the places where you can see a little bit of that prism busting loose and you now see there's a little shining light of Jesus right there. And I'm going to hang on to that little bit of light because I know somewhere in this swirl of life he actually has all this under control. That's not to say that you don't have some concerns that you need to take care of. But it is to say that the one who actually is going to see you through has never missed a beat. You and I don't know when the next major storm is coming, amen? If you live life long enough, you're going to find something out. You haven't got a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, we make our plans, and we should. The bottom line is, I could wake up tomorrow with terminal cancer. That's a fact. So I can either sit around and worry about it, or I can trust that if God allows that in my life, he's got a purpose in it. Doesn't mean I like it. Doesn't mean it's going to be a pleasant experience. It just simply means the same God that's brought me thus far is going to get me all the way home. Amen? That's the kind of trust that God wants us to have. That's why he gave this covenant to Noah. God of all creation, the God of rainbows is also the God of your salvation. Amen? The reason I I want you to focus in on this for a moment, Revelation chapter 10 says something pretty amazing. Verse 1, And I saw another mighty angel, and by the way, the only mighty angel this could be would be Jesus himself. Because he's the only one that fits. Coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, his feet were like pillars of fire, and he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He cried out with a loud voice as when the lion roars, and he cried with seven thunders and uttered their voice. They uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered those voices, I was about to write, but I heard the voice from heaven saying to me, "Seal up these things which the seven thunders have uttered, and do not write them." God has it under control. That one who wears that same rainbow as a a crown on his head knows exactly when the end of this earth is going to happen. And it's not going to happen one second sooner than Jesus wants it to. And it's not going to be late either. I don't know how many of you are C.S. Lewis fans with the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, fairly large in our home, uh, along with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. But in the second book, Prince Caspian, Lucy kind of enters Narnia again, and she hasn't seen Aslan in uh, quite a long time. And if you know the story there, the lion Aslan actually represents Jesus, represents Christ. And though she's not seen him for a long time, they kind of have this reunion, and Lucy looks at Aslan, and, and he says, you're bigger now. And Aslan says, Lucy, that's because you're older. And there's a beautiful picture there. He goes on to say, every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. And it's a picture for us. That's that's the case for me. When I grow, my Jesus gets bigger. Bigger. 
When, when I walk and trust and, and let God be God in my life, then, then my Jesus gets bigger. My Aslan gets bigger. When I see him, he's huge. And every foe seems small. But if I don't grow, I have a little tiny Aslan. And, and I only trust him for little things. As I get older, God's supposed to grow in our lives. We find him bigger in grace. We find him bigger in goodness. We find him bigger in faithfulness. We find him bigger in the promises that he's made and kept. God makes promises because he is a promise-making and he's also the promise-keeping God. Amen? And so rest and trust in those promises. Learn them, know them, grow them. So that when you see the Lord, you see him bigger all the time. You have a big God capable of big things. And the more you grow, the more he's capable of. The less you grow, the less he's capable of in your eyes. So grow in him. Rest in his promises. Amen? Worship team's going to come back up. You know, some of those old hymns. I was thinking, this is my father's world. You know, think about it. This is God's world. Belongs to him. He knows what to do to take care of it. You're his child. He knows who you are. He knows where you are. He hasn't lost you. I know where my children are right now. And sometimes I'm not a great father. Our heavenly father is a perfect father. He knows every moment where you are. He knows what you need. And he is willing to to do what it takes to get you all the way home. Make sure you're growing so that God seems big. Father, thank you for tonight and pray that you would just continue to help us to see you uh, as a big God capable of big things. You've made huge promises to us. Lord, you have, you have declared that if we believe in you, we will never die. Lord, that our eternal home, that if you go, you go to prepare a place for us. Our eternal home is heaven. And you want us to be there with you. You, you've promised us that wherever we go, you will always be there with us. Uh, even if that were to be the, the depths of Hades itself, you're there. And so, Lord, when we know your promises and see your promises for what they are, and we rest and trust in them, you seem huge, and our problems seem small. And so, Lord, we thank you for tonight. Pray that you would bless us. Continue to instruct us, Lord, from your word. May we rest and trust in it. In Jesus' name, amen.